Anyway, we should tape an actual podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with uh, Dara Lynn and Jane Coaston. This has been... It's been a week, I would say. It's been a week. There's been a lot of news, but I think that when we look back in the grand sweep of history, we will see the Supreme Court news of this week as the most um, enduringly consequential. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy both sided with conservatives on a whole bunch of cases to close out the week and then dropped the news that he's retiring. And it has, I think— just it's a big deal substantively. And I've also I've experienced it in in readers and, and people I know. This has been like a psychic gut punch to a lot of American liberals who, you know, had been looking to the courts as an institutional check on Donald Trump and seeing both the swing justice throw in with the conservatives on a bunch of cases and then hand the seat over to the Trump regime is a it's like it's like a reminder that this is really happening. Yeah, I would like to state for the record, for those of you who were listening to last week's uh, podcast that Inter Alia talked about the potential retirement of Justice Kennedy, at least one of you has blamed me personally for the retirement because in calling him the messiest drama queen of them all, I apparently hurt the justice's feelings and caused him to retire. I would like to say that if this is the case, that characterization stands entirely. Yep. But, you know, I, I understand if you are a frustrated liberal and you need a punching bag, as long as it is only a metaphorical punching bag, then it is all right. Right to blame Vox for the retirement of Kennedy. Yeah, although I guess the more plausible story is that Kennedy's son and Don Jr. are buddies through their Deutsche Bank connections, mm-hmm. which this was a curious piece of newspaper decision making, it seemed to me, because like the New York Times, <laughs> I wish they'd run that story months ago. Like yeah. it's, it's really interesting. Right. It's really yeah, good to know. The... It really does contextualize everything that's happened here in an intriguing way. And, and I assume the reporters who wrote that story didn't just like happen to find it out the day after Kennedy retired. But I want to talk a little bit about the cases that we that we yes, had please. this week because I think it, it sets the context for this because, I mean, these are not the most important decisions in American constitutional history. But one of them took on a racial gerrymander in Texas. One of them took on the latest version of the travel ban. And one of them took on public sector labor unions. And all of them were five to four cases all of them Kennedy joining with the conservative justices, and they sort of check off all of the things that as a Donald Trump opponent you might be hoping for. That the, that the travel ban, you know, this does not impact most Americans' lives in a concrete way, but it is an incredible piece of symbolism of like Trump and like Donald Trump is honest to God, the president of the United States. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely at this point, given the differences between the version that everybody remembered from January and and what's happening right now, it is arguably a bigger symbolic deal than in actual policy. That's maybe overstating it, but certainly in terms of the kind of The chilling effect that it's produced is extremely real, both for people within and outside of the United States. And that's exactly the kind of thing that the uh, Supreme Court has decided is, like, totally not relevant. Right. I mean, the ruling, to be a little unlawyerly about it, was just, like, basically, like, sorry, guys, he's the president. Right. Right? Like, you can't show up here with a bunch of tweets and stuff and be like, 
no, he doesn't have this presidential authority. It's like the president has the authority to not let people enter the country. Right. But it was also kind of refocusing it on the executive branch and away from Donald Trump, which is what I found super interesting because at oral argument in April, uh, Noel Francisco, the solicitor general, made a really strong case that this had been basically a typical government review process that a bunch of cabinet secretaries had directed their staffs to do some research and then they'd all sat down and like Donald Trump didn't have a lot to do with determining, you know, what was who, which was fine at the time, but it was as strongly made as it could have been. And then there was a bunch of stuff over the last couple of months that made it clear that Donald Trump cares a great deal about particular like immigration policy, even if he doesn't always have the best grasp of reality on it. So it's a very interesting argument for the Supreme Court to make on this particular issue. But it also kind of speaks to some of the stuff we were talking about last week, especially when Sonia Sotomayor wrote the dissent. It was basically, you are deliberately closing your eyes to relevant facts on the ground in order to make this case based on a theoretical presidency rather than the dude who's actually sitting in the White House. Right. And then you had the Texas case, which followed on the Wisconsin gerrymandering case. And they just basically made clear that, like, one of the main sources of liberal worry about Trump is, you know, he got 46 percent of the vote, Right. Hillary got 48 percent, but Trump became president. Right. Now he's unpopular. Every generic ballot poll that I have seen for the past year shows the Democrats will get more House votes, but it's very unclear that they will get more House seats because of the way the districts are drawn. There had been a hope that they could, through the courts, sort of pull a rabbit out of their hat and create a situation in which if most people voted against Trump, there would be a guarantee that Trump would be checked via the political process. But, you know, the courts really said here, like, no, like, having done very poorly in the 2010 midterms, like, you just have to live with the consequences of that. Right. And I think that that's been something interesting because there's a lot of people brought up like, ah, yes, the Supreme Court returned to originalist arguments. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, okay, the courts shouldn't be doing any of this. But it's also interesting because we saw a lot of conservatives talking immediately after news of Kennedy's retirement, like, ah, yes, this is the time for us to, through the courts, take all of this action and overturn Roe v. Wade. And I was like, ah, yes, the originalist court that would just overturn things that have happened. So, yes, this gets at a really interesting tension. I mean, a lot of the takes that have happened in the wake of Kennedy's retirement and a lot of the profiles of the judges that are kind of on the what we know of as the quote unquote shortlist, which is like 25 people long. So it's not really a shortlist that Trump has, you know, issued publicly on who he would consider for Supreme Court thoughts in the future. There's kind of an assumption that these are all like down the line Federalist Society folks, which is probably not untrue. But there is a very interesting tension within the conservative legal movement about whether you use the kind of stare decisis small c conservative, dispositionally conservative attitude of letting precedent stand or whether you consider originalism to be, you know, clearing away the scruff of hundreds of years of expanded government and being very activist in that regard. And not all of the judges who are on this list, you know, necessarily agree with each other on that. And not all of them agree on whether that requires the Supreme Court to, like, take more power than the Constitution necessarily gave it. Like, Justice Thomas is over here all the time saying, we don't have the authority to issue an opinion on this at all. Although, I mean, I would say this is where I I do think that the public sector union case is a big tell because, like, there was a very clear precedent on this from decades ago. You know, there had been a big movement. A guy named Dick Ulane had, like, 
Uline, maybe. I don't know how you pronounce his name. He'd put a lot of money into this over the years. Um, the Illinois Republican Party was very invested. They, they wanted to, to change this. And the five justices just said, like, yeah, that old decision was wrong. Like, we're not going to we're not going to do it this way. You know, and that doesn't mean that all conservative judges would rule that way on every case under the sun. But I think it does go to show that this was not a famous Supreme Court precedent. Right. There's like right. five or six things that like politically engaged normal people like can tell you what the precedents are. And this question of representation fees for public sector unions is not one of them. And so they were very comfortable just sort of brushing that aside. And there's been a real triumph of like conservative branding since the 1970s that they have some kind of consistent view that courts sometimes go out of control and strike things down and they want to leave discretion to the legislatures. But if you look at the scorecard, right, I mean, it was the the Roberts court struck down a significant amount of Medicaid expansion uh, a few years ago in a ruling that was considered to favor liberals because it didn't strike down all of the Affordable Care Act. And this is, I think, I mean, we'll talk about this, but a big question in, in my mind about with Kennedy gone is that Kennedy had a set of issues that he sometimes sided with liberals on. And then he had a, a larger set of issues where he usually sided with conservatives on. But I think as a human being, he had one foot not in the conservative movement camp. And so we don't really know how much in those five to four rulings, how much Kennedy was a moderating influence on the scope of the decision relative to a – in part just because Kennedy was old, right? And so like when Kennedy was young, the modern conservative movement didn't exist in the same way it does today. So he like wasn't at the same law school parties that a 50-year-old justice would be. And we might get like much more – aggressive Supreme Courting, even on topics where Kennedy has tended to be with the conservatives. Although, I mean, this stuff is hard to guess, I think. It seems to me that like law professors tend to develop a lot of strongly held opinions about how people will perform as Supreme Court justices, often without a ton of basis. So I actually think that the two things that you said kind of explain each other, right? There was a history, certainly for a few decades there, of you wouldn't necessarily know exactly what kind of Supreme Court justice you were nominating. Stephen Breyer was famously not a Republican nominee, um, which is uh, not the way he turned out. But there's kind of an accepted view now, and maybe it's wrong. We'll have to see who gets nominated. But it's been kind of accepted that with the conservative legal movement now so organized and with it being possible for a young conservative law student to become a member of the Federalist Society and from there have an infrastructure for your entire career, that it is at this point pretty easy for a Republican president to pick somebody with a very long track record of conservative ideas and jurisprudence. There have been some kind of jokes, not really jokes, over the last few months about some of these judges who have gotten nominated to lower courts by the Trump administration writing these very, you know, rhetorically bombastic opinions that come off as if they're auditioning for a Trump Supreme Court slot. Not because they're bombastic in the way that Trump is, but because they're being extremely conservative, not just in the substance of their rulings, but in their rhetoric as well. And so I do kind of wonder if the idea of not just having one foot outside the conservative legal movement, but having an eye toward 
the public, like where the median member of the American public is on things, which arguably should not guide someone's jurisprudence, but almost certainly guided Kennedy's at some key moments. If having somebody who has spent their entire career in an ecosystem that is extremely ideological and directs them away from that, that's going to make it very obvious what they're going to rule on when you put them up for the court. Right. And I also think that this goes back to something that's been interesting as, you know, I spent most of my time thinking about conservatism and noticing and looking at conservatism. And it's been interesting how there this is another issue in which I'm seeing a lot of liberals who are like, huh, so maybe we should just try more through the legislative process. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. maybe. I think Tablet Magazine's Yair Rosenberg wrote something that he said that thinking that you could just go to the courts clearly is a long-term recipe for public disillusionment and alienation. And I think that there's been a sense that I remember – in my olden times when I was working for the human rights campaign, there very much was a sense that like, okay, if we need to work on marriage equality, we're going to do it in two fronts. You can convince hearts and minds at the at the ground level. But that's really, really hard because a lot of times people don't know gay people and get like weirdly distrustful. They're like, but, you know, I don't want this gay person to get married, but this gay person would be okay. And you're like, okay. But then you get to go through the courts, and that's when you're like, you go state by state by state by state by state and win case after case or lose a couple of cases and then keep winning. But eventually, through the courts, this is workable because it seemed, I think, to a lot of people in within the movement at the time that it may take decades before you could convince people – on the ground level, that marriage equality was a good idea because the same reason why it took decades even after Loving v. Virginia to convince people that interracial marriage was okay. You know, the polling numbers on that within the last 15 years have been like, okay, most people think this is okay now. But the court seemed like an easier route to go. But clearly it's not because the courts can always just change and people upon those courts can be nominated by someone who is Donald Trump. And so I think that... This presents a new and unique challenge that I think for a lot of people on the left and especially through like left-leaning organizations hadn't had as much opportunity to consider at a time where people on the ground, like everyday Americans, are more divided than they have been in a while. So I think that the problem with the taking the harder, you know, like hearts and minds approach yeah. is that – and, you know, this is kind of the key to why this feels like such a gut punch to liberals right now, I, I think, is – the courts are inter alia making it easier to keep state legislatures and Congress in Republican hands through gerrymandering. There's a feeling that when the last several presidential elections, you know, the person who won the majority of the vote has like not been elected president, both in 2000 and again in 2016, that there is kind of a gap between where the American people are and where their government is. And, you know, it's kind of one thing to have a New Deal era court where the Supreme Court was very resentful of new federal programs under Roosevelt. And he famously tried to engage in court packing to expand the court so that he could name some of his own dudes on there to tip the balance. But there was an executive who had very strong different ideas about what the country should do and a Congress that was you know, willing to authorize that. And on the other hand, you have the kind of Gilded Age court where you have a presidency and Congress that are generally in the hands of moneyed interests. And so a lot more can get done. You know, a lot of the kind of 
deregulatory cases that conservatives look to now are from that era because a lot more can happen when it's everybody moving in the same direction. And so I, I feel like it's the idea of the three branches all being in control of one party when the American public is very much not that way is also making it feel like there's no point in changing hearts and minds because there's this growing gap between the idea of a one-party controlled federal government and a polity that does not support that government. Well, and it's, you know, I mean, so much hinges on on small changes, right? I mean, very small number of votes shifted would have made Hillary Clinton president, would have made these judicial vacancies look totally different. Uh, in the House, like, what we know is that the election in November is going to be close, right? But there's a huge difference, right? Like, both substantively and psychologically, to Democrats win a seven percentage point popular vote victory and have a three-seat majority, and Democrats win a seven-point popular vote majority and have a three-seat minority, right? Like, those are very similar, like, public opinion landscapes, but people are seeing that we are close to a universe in which a majority of the public will have consistently voted against Republicans, but they will maintain and even strengthen a grip on on all the political institutions. And it's worrying, particularly because, you know, there's a lot of issues where there's no there is no alternative to going through the courts, right? I mean, there's a handful of constitutional issues where you can sort of posit, oh, well, you could try a lawsuit or you could try to get the laws changed. But like there was this sort of obscure case about American Express and um, credit card fees. But, you know, this was just like an antitrust case. Right? right? Like, and that's how antitrust law works, right? Like, there is a law. The law says you can't obtain and abuse monopoly powers, but the only remedy is that you have lawsuits. And if the courts always rule for business defendants in litigation, then there's like, there's no point in writing laws, right? Like, the reason you write laws is to try to win the cases. So it's important on, on a number of levels, although, I mean, Kennedy in particular, right, replacing Kennedy with a more orthodox conservative because we should we should turn to the short list, yeah, yeah, yeah. seems most likely to make a difference on abortion rights, on affirmative action, and on criminal justice. That on most of these other topics, he's largely been in line with with conservatives. And of course, there's there's a range of views as to how aggressive one should go on that. Also, LGBT issues is an interesting topic, uh, right? Because Kennedy is will be extremely well-known in history for the Obergefell opinion, which made a really big difference at the time. It strikes me politically from my armchair as like really unlikely that even the most frothing at the mouth right-wing justice joining the court would lead to like a substantial rollback of LGBT rights simply because public opinion has moved so far in the other direction. I also think that um, David French at National Review raised this issue that there have been a lot of cases, you know, there was the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop and then there's the Arlene's Flowers. And there are a lot of things have to do with like religious freedom in and around a hypothetical same-sex marriage, but not a same-sex marriage itself. If you remember, Obergefell v. Hodges was about the fact that Jim Obergefell needed to obtain a marriage license in order to be buried next to his late husband in the state of Ohio because they had to get married in Baltimore because that's where same-sex marriage was legal. So there's no case. I don't see anything. You know, Alliance Defense Fund isn't pushing something. There's no case at the present that would basically be trying to figure out why they shouldn't have a marriage license. There's something like 
you shouldn't have to do something for a hypothetical same-sex marriage, but the same-sex marriage itself, that there's no available case I can find or no argument currently being made on that matter. And so I think that that's something, especially because the number, like, I feel as if from the conservatives, I know and observe that there's very much of a sense of kind of like, all right, like the the next battle is going to be the Arlene's flowers. It's not going to be trying to hash out Obergefell again. But this is kind of a, and you know, I'll say this and then I promise we can get to the shortlist, but this is the case for why litigation does in fact lead public opinion, right? It's, you know, we will never know because we can't run the hypothetical on that. But as rapidly as public opinion has changed on gay people and same-sex marriage, it is not obvious that absent the Supreme Court so decisively taking it off the table with Obergefell and with the marriage equality decisions that it had made in the in a couple of years prior to that, that there would be a sense that this was a settled issue in the same way. Like, obviously, the way that they decided Roe v. Wade and then kind of followed up with Casey versus Planned Parenthood in, in the 90s, like, made it clear that they considered abortion a live issue, which has kept it alive both in the courts, in the legislatures, and in public opinion. If they had said in Roe v. Wade, no, for real, it is obvious that a woman can have an abortion anywhere in the United States at any time she wants, period. It's not clear that this would be so closely fought by people in public as well as in the courts. Right. I think that that's very true because you've seen you are, you're seeing the activism immediately on Roe v. Wade. You know, a Washington Examiner came out with an editorial today saying, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade now based on this idea that like even pro-choice people think this is bad law and if this were sent back to the states then some states would have legal abortion and some states wouldn't. But the idea of hypothetically repealing Roe v. Wade, I think on the ground doesn't have the same appearance of repealing marriage equality and like unmarrying thousands of people. Right. Okay. So let's take a break. Let's, let's talk about the shirt list. list. Nobody wants to buy a $50 t-shirt that only costs $7 to make. I don't want to. You don't want to. Nobody does. And with Everlane, you don't have to. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes because they make what they call premium essentials. They use the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent with every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. The clothes look better, they cost less, they last longer. They got essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt that's exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, made from quality materials. I got a new baseball cap type thing for them. It's great for the summer. You know, I've got a toddler, so I spend a lot of time on like crazy hot days on playgrounds. It's great there. I got some cool new pocket tees. I got a new bag. I've talked before about how much I like the Twill Weekender bag. I liked it so much I got a different, bigger bag for trips that take longer than the weekend. It's really awesome. They got a lot of good stuff out there. They're time essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. Right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash weeds. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash weeds. Everlane.com slash weeds. Okay, we've mentioned this before, but Vox has a new show on Netflix. It's called Explained. Every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that topic is... 
esports. I got an early preview. I know you're going to love it. It explores the question like, what the heck is esports? What makes esports different? How did it become a phenomenon? It explores the legendary history, the turning point between arcade play, what we now know as esports. It features Thresh, who is the Michael Jordan of esports. Really, you got to watch it. It's really cool. So go find it on Netflix tonight. You search for Vox in your Netflix app. You go straight to netflix.com slash explained. You know, whenever there's a president, there's always sort of a a list floating around of people who that president might be looking to put on a Supreme Court, right? When Sonia Sotomayor was named to the bench, that did not come as like a like a shock to, right. to political reporters. Trump is a little bit different because a really key part of Donald Trump getting the institutional conservative movement behind him during the 2016 campaign was promising with an unusual level of clarity and explicitness that like he was going to appoint their judges, that this was not going to be one of these things where you have aides in the press going, well, he's a different kind of president, right? Like there is no Donald Trump freelancing on judges. And I, I, of- I will. I did just publish an article on this. This also came about because there was that brief moment where Trump joked about nominating his sister who is a liberal-ish judge, and Ted Cruz made hay out of this in about February of 2016 and basically was saying that, you know, if Ted, if uh, Donald Trump becomes president, the Second Amendment is gone and everything will be terrible. And that's why he put out this list in right. May of 2016. Right. Of so, I mean, there, was, there was a real concern about this, that, that Donald Trump would govern with regard to judges the way he governs in, say, trade policy, which is being very idiosyncratic, right? So instead, he like he put out this list and he was like, these are the people I will consider. To me, some of the names on that list are like, strategic fake news. Like one of them is is William Pryor, who's a, an appellate judge on, on the 11th Circuit. And Pryor, I don't think Trump will pick. I don't think any Republican president would pick for the exact reason that Trump put him on the list, which is that Pryor has been incredibly explicit about in public about his judicial aspirations and said in hearings that Roe v. Wade was, quote, the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law, right? What Democrats would love is for somebody who has said that on the record to be out there because then that really puts the squeeze on Susan Collins who has said that in her opinion it's settled law, right? And there's no wiggle room there. It's good for Trump to put prior on the list because it shows to conservatives that Trump is on their side. But like this is the worst part of American politics, in my opinion, is Supreme Court picks precisely because of this dynamic. But it's like what Trump wants is a nominee who will definitely rule the way conservatives want on all the major topics that people care about, but who it is not possible for Democrats to prove will do that. Because then you create ambiguity, you create a lot of pressure on red state Democrats to be reasonable, and you create a lot of laxness on the handful of moderate Republican senators, and everybody can defer to the president. And it is known among conservatives through their networks that this person is like solid on the key issues. But Trump had to prove to conservatives that right. he was solid. So I think a few of these names on this list and, – and Jane, I mean you've written about Mike Lee. Um, but like that to me is ridiculous. That's like a thing you do to butter up conservative thinkers. Be like, oh, we'll throw this politician who has like a lot of big opinions on the constitution on there rather than something you would actually – do. It's also a thing you do to butter up Republican senators who you're going to need to get, you know, 
unqualified enthusiasm from in order to successfully get this through. I will note that the the Mike Lethusiasm, if that if this becomes a thing, please. I patented Mike Lethusiasm. It's happening, you know. It's it's Lementum. It's yeah, Lementum. Oh, is better. But no, there. This is something that's been going around, and it's it's interesting for two reasons. One, allegedly, this is something that was brought up to Trump, and Trump's response was, you know, well, will we be able to replace him with a Republican? They're like, of course, it's Utah. And then his response was like, that's what you said with. Uh, Jeff Sessions' seat, and now oh, Doug Jones is in it. Snap. And I was like, that is actually the sickest burn I think I've ever heard attributed to Donald Trump. I know. I'm like, it's a legitimately sick burn. Um, but also the fact that Mike Lee's been talked up by a lot of people. And it's interesting because I think he's someone that both Republicans and libertarians could like because he's voted against defense spending bills alongside Rand Paul a couple of times and wrote uh, a lot about ending uh, indefinite detention. But he also, in October of 2016, did make a Facebook video saying, like, Donald Trump should quit the race right now. He's an embarrassment. He's terrible. And so knowing Trump, I doubt he's forgotten about that unless maybe he has. I don't know. But all I know is that, like, the name Mike Lee has been coming up a lot. I think it's more of a thing than we are giving it credit to be. Yes. I mean, and we're hearing that Trump himself is bringing up Lee, which does, like, I initially also, Jane was like, we know that Donald Trump won't let people get hired as assistant to the assistant of the Treasury Secretary because they once signed on to a letter criticizing Trump. Why on earth would he go for Mike Lee? But like maybe he has forgotten. Maybe he's forgiven. That is yeah. not a thing Trump typically does, but maybe he did it in this case. And you started to see that a little bit in a couple of recent primary races where there was someone who signed on to a letter after the grab him by the pussy comments and kind of condemned those remarks where Trump supported them now. But I generally I think that that's more due to the fact that, you know, John Kelly was like, please, please, please don't support the one who may have ties to Nazis. The thing about Mike Lee, and this is not something that Donald Trump is likely to think about, but I think it's an interesting question that is also relevant for some of the people on the list who are maybe more likely to get appointed who are judges, is Mike Lee is not the only person who thinks that the executive branch has overstepped itself in the war on terror in abrogating Fourth Amendment privacy rights. Like, there are many legal libertarians who think that that is the case. And right. we haven't seen a test where Gorsuch is on this, but Gorsuch is known for thinking that the administrative state has gone too far, both in the things that Republicans tend to like the administrative state for, like immigration, right. and in the things that liberals do. So it is not obvious that the Trump administration is thinking about nominating someone who is more like a Sam Alito than a Neil Gorsuch in right. this regard. For all of the things in which Trump has taken a very authoritarian approach uh, to what he thinks the powers of the president are and should be, surveillance and privacy stuff hasn't really been super live. There, ha there was the one case of the like detention of the U.S. citizen overseas without doing anything. Right. But other than that, the kind of Bush era war on terror Fourth Amendment stuff hasn't really become alive again. And if it does, it's actually going to be super crucial whether what kind of legal conservative Trump puts on the court. And Trump could very easily find himself getting extremely mad just as he got mad at Gorsuch for ruling with the in the DeMaia ruling yeah. in favor of a, you know, an immigrant having a better chance to apply for an applicant, you know. Right. Another tension on here is Donald Trump's ambiguous relationship to the George W. Bush administration, right? And that of the, the people on the shortlist, Joan Larson, who came out of the Bush era Office of Legal Counsel, seems like the 
the one who has the the clearest record that she would give a lot of deference to like the Trump state in doing whatever it wants. But she is also the person who has the closest sort of Bush connections of all these people. And, and Trump is said to be sort of suspicious of Bushies, that he feels that, you know, for obvious reasons, like people he meets in Republican politics are constantly recommending to him one or another, like former Bush administration official, including on the Supreme Court shortlist. But he doesn't like those people. He um, saw the Bushes go after him on the family detention, you know, like he he knows they don't like him and, right. and, and has suspicion there. And then Amul Thapar, uh, who's also a, like a long time been sort of on Trump's lists, uh, right. but but also has that has that Bush connection. I'd like to raise one quick other point uh, related yes. to Dara's point regarding kind of libertarians in the Supreme Court, which is something I'd love to see happen just because I love chaos. Um, I think that Don there's— Willett. <laughs> There's been an argument made um, that a more originalist court, you know, we talked a little bit about, mm-hmm. you know, is this an originalist court or is it like scrubbing away the last 200 years of history kind of court and how that would play into dealing with a hypothetical police brutality case or having to do with anything that involves state power. And I think that really depending on who this pick might be, that could get really interesting because there's been kind of a reconsideration among conservative law people about the notion of state power and the notion of state police power. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that could get very interesting for conservatives because there are a lot of conservatives who have been working really hard on criminal justice reform, but also a lot of conservatives who are starting at a very base level to reconsider things like, you know, how they view police and kind of state actors in crime and policing. And it's it's been interesting to see, you know, I started seeing a lot more conservatives talking about how, like, the Janus ruling might finally start breaking the power of police unions, which I think is uh-huh. like the – yeah, which I think one is – a stretch, but also just kind of an interesting insight into where kind of conservative libertarians are on this moment. So I think that that's something also to keep in mind as well. On the other hand, you know, at least one of the dudes on this list that is actually like toward the higher end of the list in terms of actual likelihood of getting picked, Thomas Hardiman has kind of certainly made a name for himself being, you know, on the side of the state in this case is he he ruled that it didn't violate the Fourth Amendment to strip search jail inmates. He's written that the the First Amendment doesn't give citizens the right to tape police. Like there definitely are choices Trump could make on this particular issue that, again, if he's thinking about this and we don't have any indication that he is because these aren't the kind of things that Trump considers. But a more philosophically committed Donald Trump would be aware that there are picks that could totally backfire on him on the issues he cares about most and be careful to avoid those and be maybe more likely to nominate a Judge Hardiman, who is definitely going to be a like reliable voice in favor of the state on this. I mean, I would also say I, I'm not like a big believer in, I don't know, law lawyers. To me, like Brett Kavanaugh, who's at the top of the list, strikes me as the most dangerous of these people, simply just because of the literary qualities of his opinions. Like, if you read his opinions trying to strike down the Affordable Care Act, trying to strike down everything Barack Obama ever did on environmental regulation, you can try to write a legal opinion that attempts to convey to a reader some sense of ambivalence 
about the underlying situation. Yeah, if you, and if, Kavanaugh does not do that, right? Like right. what comes through in Kavanaugh's opinion is that he thinks these are really shitty policies and he's really glad that as a judge, he has the authority to strike them down. And he is not attempting to restrain himself from that. And again, I mean, I don't know. You know, people get on me like, I think on some level, all these judges are pulling all their decisions out of their asses. But like what you find up your ass can vary from person to person. And like... That is what? definitely a uh, <laughs> a more memorable way to put the discussion we were having last week about legal realism. And... You know, what he finds up there, it seems to me, is just like total contempt for American liberalism. You know, like he he worked for Ken Starr on the Whitewater Report. He uh, he was the the main author of it. You know, like he put all the lurid details in there. He struck down everything he could on the D.C. circuit. And yet he's an experienced guy. Like if he comes up there and you're like, how are you going to rule on this case that's important? He's going to be like, I look at the law, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's what you do in these in these kind of situations. And it. He's like literally the first person on the Vox article list. Um, yes. he, he strikes me as the both worst and most likely kind of choice here. Although uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who is both super young at 46 and a woman, I mean, I think from a like politics perspective, there's a lot to be said for that. There was a, I think, crazy Politico article that was like, maybe Trump could take the sting out of abortion politics by nominating a woman, which is like clearly not the case. Maybe right. for Susan Collins, but you, which is relevant. It is true that to the extent that you can put any kind of padding around yeah. a necessarily hard blow, like this would do it. So much of what has happened since Trump has become president has been left of center women becoming more and more engaged yes. with politics. Putting Roe v. Wade in danger is going to accelerate that. Having five men do it is going to put that up a further notch. Um, I would, I guess, if I were in the position to give Donald Trump political advice, like trying to minimize around that by putting a woman on the bench probably makes some sense, even if it won't work. So right. I, I want to get back to what you were saying about Kavanaugh, because I think that this is an important thing to be aware of, especially with, you know, these young potential nominees who would be on the court for years and years. The Supreme Court is a repeat player game. These people have to, like, live and work with each other for a long time. Right. And so any given opinion process isn't just, well, where do five people sit on the law? It's also what is going to not piss off the minority to a certain extent, what is going to kind of help set up other cases down the road. There is a certain amount of collegiality that Supreme Court justices have always expected of each other, or certainly right. like in the modern era have expected of each other, that is not necessarily super compatible with these writing opinions to own the libs philosophies. Right. There have been some kind of court gossip reports about whether or not Neil Gorsuch is a popular Supreme Court justice with his fellow justices. And liberals have been, frankly, salivating at some of this, in part because I think there's a deeply felt need to reassure themselves that Neil Gorsuch is like an unprecedentedly terrible Supreme Court justice because of the circumstances of his nomination, but also because if Neil Gorsuch is pissing off the left wing of the court, that is going to make it harder for him to get them on board you know, if he has to cobble together a five-judge opinion on something. So there are definitely questions about whether the strident conservatism that everyone appears to accept is like your ticket to getting nominated by the Trump administration is going to be the best move on a court whose chief justice really doesn't like 
making waves in that way. Obviously, John Roberts has very strong political beliefs in a lot of ways, but he doesn't tend to love the give him hell style of opinion. Like the court also does have two relatively young-ish liberal justices in Sotomayor and Kagan. So like they're going to be around for a bit. Yeah. And I I also think it's interesting because I think Kavanaugh has been the one who I've seen conservatives kind of haggle over the most of just getting very upset about some specific opinions and just getting very worried. But also if we can just also offer Trump more legal advice or just political advice, I would not – not on the list that we have, but on the list from which he selected Gorsuch is uh, Robert Young, who is out of Michigan and who is currently the general counsel for Michigan State University and who is helping them hinder the investigation into Larry Nassar. I would not pick him. That seems like – I would not do that. I would – I mean if he wants to. Yeah, I I think a lot of that is that it's the one black dude on this list. Like you can kind of look at if you look at the current jobs of the people on the full 25 person list, the fact that there is one black dude and he is a retired state Supreme Court justice tells you something about why he was put on the list. And maybe with how much seriousness the people who uh, put the list together care about the diversity of judges on the bench. Oh, no. But, you know, we want diversity of opinion, Tara. Diversity of opinion. <laughs> Although in this case, I mean, not that much diversity no. of opinion. No, no. <laughs> so, so, I mean, an interesting question lurking in the background of this is like, who is actually making this decision? I mean, again, like this is an area of policymaking in which the Trump presidency is odd, right? Like Trump has been given leeway by congressional Republicans in terms of personal corruption scandals that I don't think any president has ever been given by Congress in the past. You know, even, I mean, all Congress is like more kinder to same party presidents, but like it's crazy that like not a single vulnerable House member is like trying to save their butts by being like, hey guys, like we need to, we need to do something about this. I think this. the closest you're getting is Justin Amash out of Michigan and he he's not up right. for re-election. But, and but he's I mean also like they're, they're, they're not yeah. doing anything, no. right? Like they're, they're not organizing. But then in other realms, like one really gets the sense that like Donald Trump is a bit player in the production of circuit court nominees for the Trump administration, yes. right? That like there is some assembly line being run out of an office in the West Wing. And, Don McGahn's office. Yeah, and 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 emails uh, over to the Federalist Society and— And to the Heritage Foundation. And the senators themselves, right? right? And like Trump is not like doing this work. Um, obviously, the president has to like okay the Supreme Court pick. But we saw, right, like Democrats tried to sort of— troll Trump by, like, making Gorsuch sort of ritually denounce some of Trump's tweets about the role of the judiciary. And there were all these reports that, like, yeah, like, Trump was really mad and, like, Trump wanted to cancel on him. But, like, he couldn't, right? I I mean, he could have, but he couldn't. And, and I think people don't always get this, that there is there is this side where, like, Trump is out of control. Trump is like this runaway train that congressional Republicans have no supervision over. But there's this other side where, like, a normal president, if he felt personally antagonized by a potential judicial nominee, would swap him out for somebody else. And like Trump, he is supported by congressional Republicans, but they don't believe in him no. in that kind of way. And so like he has to pick the person that they want, but there's there's like a range of options there. 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure that Trump himself gets that. Like, frankly, I was really surprised when he said we're going to adhere to the 25 person list. And maybe that's just because he really likes the reality show theater of everybody, you know, knowing, oh, which of the people yeah. on the list is it going to be? But from the perspective of Donald Trump, the political atmosphere is very different than it was when he nominated Gorsuch. We know that he's actually been frustrated with Republicans and conservatives for not more enthusiastically supporting him because he gave them Gorsuch and they shouldn't complain. Like he he knows how important those nominations are to a lot of conservatives. And so he thinks he's done a lot for them and it's their turn to appreciate him. And we know that he feels generally a lot more comfortable making decisions than he did in the first months of his presidency. So I don't know that this nomination is going to be the showdown that it could be because it does look like Donald Trump understands that, like this is another fight that he shouldn't pick. But if he were to pick that fight, we would see a very interesting dynamic crop up because Donald Trump genuinely does not appear to believe that he owes anybody anything at this stage of his presidency. Nope. Good times. Right. Although, well, it's hard to know, right? And so then it's worth saying, after this news came down, I immediately saw millions of takes about Senate Democrats and Senate Democrats should do this, Senate Democrats should do that. And, and like, I really do think it's worth being clear that, like, there's nothing Senate Democrats can do. Like, they can make a big show about things, um, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it is literally true that for Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski to block a Trump nominee, the Democrats all need to stand together. But if Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski stick with their party and vote to confirm Trump's nominee, I mean, it's important to get the order of operations right. Like, if this nominee gets confirmed with 51 votes or gets confirmed with 54 votes or even gets confirmed with 57 votes, it's really only the two pro-choice Republican women senators whose votes matter. Everything else that happens with the red state Democrats is just like pure finger in the wind politicking. I think it's pretty clear that if Republicans are willing to defect, like Democrats will join with them and and do this block. But like it's all sort of dog and pony show, whereas like the real question is like do Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski – want to take a stand that would save some of these jurisprudence on abortion rights in particular, or do they want to accept a fudge? You know, I think you will likely get a nominee who comes up there and says, like, precedent is very important and, you know, like various things like that. But like those are the stakes and it's Collins and Murkowski who actually have the power to to shape things and they've been making – Obviously, like their preference would be for Donald Trump to just like screw everybody and appoint a moderate for no reason. And and it, it seemed to me that Collins kind of said that the other day. Um, but obviously, he's not going to do that. Right. Like, I, like Donald Trump can do things if people make him. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is that the White House is using a procedural justice approach. Like Trump met with senators last night. Someone in the White House has understood one of the key insights into congressional psychology, which is it doesn't actually matter what decision you ultimately come to as long as you make people feel included. That is not always true, but it is definitely true for United States senators with nominations. Like, if they feel that they have input into the process, they ultimately, they are just much more likely to be cool with who gets picked at the end of it. So I think that they're doing exactly the thing that you would expect a an administration with a better track record of competency in lobbying Congress to do. And so I'm now, I think that 
if that hadn't been the case, there would be much more of a question about where Collins and Murkowski were going to come down on this. But I have a really hard time believing that after they're being, you know, consulted by the Trump administration, that they're not going to come out in favor of whoever gets picked. Right. Lee Mentum. Lee Mania. With that, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we've got what we need here. Um, so thanks, Jane, for, for coming on. Um, thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. You can check us out at the Weeds Facebook group if you have uh, other names you would like to suggest to the Trump administration. I feel like um, Don McGahn <laughs> is closely monitoring the Facebook group for thoughts and ideas. That's where he gets all his best stuff from. Matt, we need to talk about chilling effects. Chilling. Chilling effect. Yeah. They're totally like the White House is monitoring the Weeds Facebook group. Nobody was going to want to post. No, no, no. In a good way. They're looking for policy ideas. That's where they get their material from. So, no, uh, thank you all for listening, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.